0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh,
1: as you can see, I mean, there's Aquinas' freedom and the brain, and the brain is very prominent. And before we zero in on the brain, um, I think we have to zero zoom out a little bit, you know, um, because sometimes uh, one can lose the, um, the connections if one Just gets the microscopic view and so freedom is something we look at not just in terms of the brain and such things but also in uh, society and politics and so forth and they are all connected notions I think and in our contemporary culture choice is an important um, good that people want to defend so we want things to be our choice and our choices not to be interfered with And that can sometimes amount really to almost like the highest value that people defend. Uh, Whatever else there is, there is nothing that um, can impose on that. It's the ultimate kind of rubric under which I uh, look at things. And now let's say we have all the choices that we want. Everything that put at our disposal. Then what do we do with our freedom? And why is that even a question? if choice is an ultimate value, if it is the ultimate goal for which we live, (coughs) that that question should answer itself, you just choose, right? But if you have further questions of, well, what should I choose? What is my choice therefore? I think you are onto something because I think choice and free choice, freedom, uh, is indeed not an end in itself, it is a means. And that is why there is still a further question. Who do we want to be? How do we want to live? That is not a question that is answered by saying I have free choice. And the ultimate uh, um, rubric under which we can put that is something certainly that is good. We always choose something as a good. But I think if you put all the goods together, if you put give you a whole picture of goodness that you live for, I think we would call that happiness. And you can think about that, but I think that uh, it's definitely the traditional answer to that, the ultimate horizon of all the goodness that we want to pursue, the universal good that we all want, and we all agree on that in some way, we all want to be happy. Now, of course, there are weird notions where you think, you know, I'm just going to prove you, I, I can not just choose unhappiness for its own sake, but maybe then you just find your happiness in proving your point, you know. There's always, ultimately, some kind of a good that we are pursuing. Even if we rob a bank, we don't choose evil for its own sake. We want to enjoy, you know, what we are robbing, or at least, you know, enjoy being so prowess prowess and doing these kind of things. So there's always a further good that we pursue by our choices. And the choice is something we value because we value the end that it allows us to pursue. And sometimes we can even forego our freedom if we can have that end anyway that can actually be dangerous. You know, political regimes can promise, I mean, we're going to give you all the goods that you want, you just surrender your freedom to us. That you know? can be dangerous. But there's also an element of truth in it because freedom, again, is a means to an end. And we can see that in politics as well, in the different outlooks in politics. For example, um, we can want freedom from interference from the government. If we think uh, about politics in that way, if we want to keep the government far away, then we consider our own personal good to be the primary goal that we are pursuing. And freedom is a means to protect that that good. If, on the other hand, we think that we are social animals, as Thomas Aquinas would think, then the common good and our political life is itself a good that we want to pursue. And then we will think about freedom differently then we will think of freedom not as a freedom from interference by the state, but it's a freedom for participation in the political life. So it's a positive kind of f- freedom. Uh, we want to participate. We want, for example, you know, even to take our uh, religious truth claims into the public square you know, and uh, allow them to be there, to engage other people with it. That's a different outlook. Now Thomas Aquinas would think that the ultimate good that we pursue is not even that. There's one further good, and that is God himself. We want the freedom not just to participate in political life, but in God's life. Participation in God's life is the ultimate good that we pursue, and that is what we are free for. And if we achieve that in heaven, presumably, then um, our freedom is fulfilled. In fact, uh, it is fulfilled, and yet we do not have a choice anymore at that moment. Thomas Aquinas says if we are seeing God face to face, there is no way of not choosing God, because we are face to face with that which we most fundamentally and most deeply want. But we will experience freedom in that. We have a fulfillment of our freedom in achieving participation in God's life and I think that's if we don't see that we can get something really wrong about the very notion of freedom but Thomas Aquinas our freedom is not so completely different from other things so if I let this drop to the floor we call that free fall well notice why we say free fall I mean why is that free well it's because that thing is doing what it naturally wants to do. It goes to the center of gravity, and there's no obstacle in the way. It uh, fulfills its nature uh, by which it gravitates to that center of gravity. And for us, it is not uh, so different, only that our center of gravity is God, Thomas Christ, would say. St. Augustine says the same thing. Uh, you may know the famous saying, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. Yeah? So, it's, that is our center of gravity, and that is um, what our freedom amounts to. It's an act of love, St. Augustine says. We love God, and that is what fulfills our freedom. And uh, St. Augustine says, our, our love is our weight. Amor meus pondus meus, he says. It's like the stone who has a weight that gravitates towards a particular location. And so also, all love gravitates towards God, and that will rest. That is where it is fulfilled. And anything that goes, gets in the way of that uh, is an obstacle to our freedom. That is what Aristotle and Aquinas call violence. So freedom and violence are opposed. But freedom is this sense of freedom that gravitates towards its natural end. And everything that is contrary to the na- nature of a thing is violence. So um, can come back to that um, later perhaps in in the Q&A but I think uh, that's an important um, background to keep in mind. Um, And for Thomas Aquinas what freedom of choice then amounts to is to say God is our ultimate goal and only God can be the spirit of fulfillment in which we can come to rest which leaves everything else indifferent. Only God can hold us so spellbound, so to speak, that we cannot choose otherwise anymore. That's our beatitude Aquinas says, if we could choose against God in heaven, we would not be in heaven really, because uh, we could still fall out of it. And that means we are always in peril, and that's not a good state to be in. But it's not because God forces us to be there, but it's because the very nature of our will makes us evil but that is true only for God. And God is this infinite good relative to which all the other goods fade uh, into indifference, basically. Every finite good leaves us indifferent. We can take it or leave it because our will is made for this greatest good. So there is choice and there's free choice in Thomas Aquinas. And so he would not disagree with the contemporary mind. There is choice and it is important, but it's important because there is a goal to it. Now, there is another side to the contemporary mind, and that has to do with uh, an appreciation for natural sciences. The element of choice has a certain kind of arbitrariness typically to it. It's often associated with postmodernism and other kind of things, social construction of ideas, whereas natural science is about things we tend to think are not up to us, there are hard facts about science and science um, tells us how they are, and they are often associated with a virtue that is deterministic. And I just want you to notice that probably most people think both at the same time. It's part of the contemporary mind to think that we have choice and that it is very important and yet also to think that there is no such thing as free will because we are determined because that's what science tells us. And so you show a brain scan of something and everybody says, ooh, and ah, and yes, it's all determined by the brain. And everybody agrees and has already forgotten that choice was such an important thing. So I think it's important to uh, confront oneself with that and not to compartmentalize these things. That's what philosophy does, I think, to confront us with that. And then indeed to ask, how does it go together? Or maybe it doesn't, you know? So now I want to show you a little bit how it may go together, according to Thomas Aquinas. And we want to begin with basically this side of things, the natural science, and particularly uh, these brain studies that have been done ever since the experiment of Benjamin in 1985. And there have been many follow-up experiments, people trying to... Um, make this more sophisticated or take um, certain objections into account. But from what I see, they are basically still the same kind of ideas. So what I'm going to say uh, applies to all of these. I know, for example, that undergraduates at UC Berkeley are confronted with that. And they walk out of the classroom and they're totally convinced free will doesn't exist. That's why that's important. So what is that experiment? So um, Benjamin Libet put people in a laboratory and asks them, to wiggle their finger anytime within 30 seconds without planning ahead. So just to wait and see um, um, and do this when they were first aware of a wish to urge or urge to act and then press a button at that time. And there's a clock, you know, which uh, faster clock than normal, where they could very minutiously say at this point is when that arose. And so then they push push the button, a very simple kind of setup. And the follow-up experiments are, Uh, fairly similar. Now what they found is that even before people experience this urge to act and then move their finger, there are already readiness potentials, as they are called, in the brain doing something. So that is, the brain is already doing something before we are consciously aware uh, of this wish to move our finger. Conclusion, um, well, apparently it's not us who are making the choice, our brain already has to make the choice Uh, for us before we even start to think or become consciously aware of these choices. Does that really prove the point? That's the question. Well, there are a number of problems and I will go through them one by one. First of all, just to notice, there are uh, real consequences if people think that. uh, So some people in another experiment have been confronted with uh, the data and what uh, to think about free will and that we don't have free will. And then they were given a math test And those who were prepped in that way cheated more often than the other ones. You can imagine if you don't think you have free will, you know, then who cares? I mean, I'm determined anyway, so just go for it. So there are consequences, real-life consequences. Others will say um, that, well, maybe that's not so bad. You know, if you know that somebody cannot help doing what he's doing, um, maybe you should have more empathy with that person rather than judging him. There can be some value to that, um, and you might then uh, explain, you know, every um, every uh, murderer is potentially also a victim, you know, and, um, and in fact, we are all victims because we are all determined by something, right? Well, uh, if every evildoer is also a victim, then perhaps every victim is also potentially an evildoer, right? And so, what if we have these brain scans from Benjamin Libet? You know, I just came from the airport. You know, and uh, so you're being scanned. You know, as you're going through the security. Well, maybe you have to have brain scans of readiness potentials, and so you can identify somebody who is going to do mischief before they've done something. You lock them away. You punish them before they have actually done something wrong, right? Maybe we can predict all of these things if that is so uh, deterministic, and. nobody, it's not always fought anyway. You just have to, you know, take them out of uh, circulation and that's it. There was actually a movie on that and I forget the title of that, that uh, was played on that premise. Maybe somebody of you knows that. Minority Report? Say again? Minority Report? Minority Report, yes. So, uh, along these lines. (laughs) Good, thank you. Um, So, no, that's not much of an argument because you might say, well, maybe uh, there are bad consequences to this, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong, maybe we just have to live with those consequences. But there are indeed more important things wrong. We uh, should also notice that the um, accuracy of these tests is uh, limited, all these um, fMRI brain scans are, are limited in their reliability. Uh, the brain is also a very complicated kind of thing, it's a very integrated kind of unit, and it's often not quite clear where to measure what. And it has been pointed out that the uh, this is actually seven seconds before we become consciously aware of that for at least some experiments. But uh, that is only 60% accurate. So that's barely more than chance. You know, and if that is just that, if it's just a slight bias in your data, uh, then maybe it's not more than a predisposition on which you can act or not. And in fact, Benjamin Libet thought that maybe, I mean, so we have that, but we can still veto these readiness potentials. Maybe we can do uh, as much as that. Mm-hmm. So, But then that makes the case against will already much smaller. Now, um, perhaps more on the philosophical level, um, if you have this readiness potential in the brain preceding your wiggling of the finger or pushing a button or whatever it may be, um, is the fact that something that A precedes B, does that imply that A is the cause of B? No, it doesn't. For example, night is always followed by day. Does that mean that night is the cause of day? No. So I mean, just uh, one thing being followed by another, it does not necessarily mean that it is a cause, even if it does so regularly. Day and night also follow each other regularly. And there's actually a point to that that I'll come back to later. So uh, there's a point of caution right there from the outset. It's also curious that when people tell you about these experiments, they uh, often quote uh, pathological cases. So people with brain damage, they do weird kind of things, or people with schizophrenia attribute agency to things that couldn't do anything uh, are we just the same thing? Well, uh, you can induce false beliefs, and people maybe all believe about free will is also, these are just induced false beliefs, people are just poking your brain, and then you believe that you have free will. But why would we think that pathological cases are sort of the paradigm for our normal free will? Aren't they precisely not normal? You know, um, do you know what alien hand syndrome is? You know Stanley Kubrick's film, The, um, what's it, uh, Doctor Strangelove? he you know, was always this Hitler, Hitler salute that he made, you know. Well, he was embarrassed by that, right? He tried to keep the arm down and so forth. And that it's, um, well, <clears throat> but people seem to imply that our free will is something like that. It is something that we're embarrassed by, that we're surprised by, that we want to suppress. That's the opposite of what we would think of as free will. Why would we think that's a good paradigm case for free will? So you very often find also in brain studies, um, pathological cases. And there was one author that I found that um, um, literally said, you know, if you look at the brain, there's no distinction between conscious action, reflex and disease. So if you just look at neurons firing in your brain, it always looks the same, regardless of whether you perform a conscious action or you have a knee jerk reflex or something like that. Uh, Or you have some kind of pathology in the brain. And that's all that there is to it, they would say. Now, here's the problem. If you say that, then the theory that says so must itself be one of these pathologies or indistinguishable from it. Because a, a neuroscientist who formulates a theory presumably also has neurons firing in his brain. And that's all that there is to it. And that is indistinguishable from a pathology or a reflex. Can that be? What happens to your theory if you say such a thing? So an important point to understand is that for a theory to be true, you actually need to have a certain kind of freedom. So if you say um, in your brain, there's the sequence of causes and that is true, <coughs> regardless of whether your theory says A or B, or whether it's a a neurophysiological theory or uh, maybe opposing theory to that, um, then there's no basis for evaluating which one is true. They both have causes after all. That doesn't distinguish them. If that is all that there is to them, um, you cannot evaluate theories with regard to their truth. What you need to evaluate them is something else. You don't need causes, but reasons. Reasons are what evaluates whether that thought that may have you know your neuron firing at a certain point, whether that thought is correct or not. Well, you have to argue about that. You argue with other scientists. You know you have to to reason and deduce. You give premises for the conclusions that you propose. But for that to happen, you must be able to follow your premises and where they lead. You have to follow, be able to follow the laws of logic. And if your brain constantly interferes and pushes you into some illogical uh, direction, well, if that's all that you have, you cannot follow logic. There is no argument. There is no science, basically. You cannot evaluate theories. That's very bad for a theory, including a theory that says, you know, we are not free. So, that theory itself is self-undermining. The one who has importantly uh, argued for that is C.S. Lewis, in his book on miracles, it's a very good book, I can only recommend it, and um, other people have picked that up. It's called the argument from reason. So, you have to be able to follow reasons, logical reasons, uh, to argue for the truth of what you're doing. But if what you're doing follows not reasons, but the causes of your brain, there's no way to do that. And so to claim that science proves the non-existence of freedom is, in that sense, a self-contradiction. Here's another thought. So <clears throat> this, this cannot be true. So there is a problem for the very truth claim that people make. But I think there's also a problem with the very meaning of the word determinism. Can you even understand what determinism means? If I were to ask you... How to define determinism. You can think about that for yourself, you know. It's actually not so easy to define without already presupposing what you want to define. So I want to suggest that the uh, best definition that you can give for determinism is by way of a negation. And it's a negation of possibilities. So if something is determined that means you don't have the possibility to do something else and that means in order to understand what determinism means you have to understand what possibility means and where do we get the notion of possibilities from i would suggest from our own freedom the experience of our freedom that is uh, the experience that we have the possibilities that we have there's a range of things we can do in our life and what we experience and define as determinism is a limitation on that. But that means our freedom and its possibilities is more fundamental than determinism and necessity. To understand what determinism means, you have to be free in a sense. And that is typically um, what we assume when we live our normal life. Deterministic theories is something you do in the laboratory like Benjamin Libet. And there you have theories that are deterministic. and. Uh, and yet, if you leave the laboratory and you go home to your family, you don't look at your family typically that way. That's what uh, people call the life world. The life world is larger than the laboratory. And it is in this larger world, in this larger horizon that we understand even these particular kind of claims. And that uh, is very concretely true because I would suggest that the real free choice doesn't occur in Benjamin Libet's experiment that has nothing to do with free choice. The real free choice is the one to enter the laboratory and that experiment. It has happened already before that. What you're testing there has nothing to do with free will. One thing that you need to be able to do in order to enter the experiment, you have to promise the experimenter that you're going to follow his instructions you have to promise that you're not going to lie to him, right? Otherwise, he doesn't have any valid data to work with. But in order to make a promise, you have to be free. Now, if you're not free, you don't know what your readiness potentials are going to tell you later, right? They might make you lie or whatever. A promise requires you to be free. So, uh, John Saul, for example, the analytical philosopher says Promises create desire-independent reasons for action. The reasons indeed for action and they're independent from desires and their causalities. I will follow the promise regardless of how I'm going to feel about tomorrow or when I'm in the experiment. That means I have to be independent from all these causal influences. How am I going to guarantee that otherwise? So promising doesn't work without freedom. And therefore the choice to enter the experiment presupposes the freedom that the experiment then seems to deny. That's a problem, you know. The data cannot show that you are determined because then the data would be unreliable. Because if you're determined, you cannot follow the promise to collaborate with the experimenter. So, that's not even the end of it. So, moreover, are people even looking in the right place if they're looking for free will here? The very concept of free will, I think, is uh, missed here by Benjamin Lindt. So they are, people are asked to push the button when they experience an urge to act. Is that a case of free will? You experience an urge to act. Well, that's something that arises in you like any kind of other stimulus, right? <clears throat> so you're basically asked to wait for something to arise in you Uh, So as Raymond Teller says, the experiment treats individuals as passive respondents to stimuli and then discovers that they are passive respondents to stimuli. It's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But notice, first of all, the passive formulation. You wait for something to arise. This feeling of experience arises in you until uh, the agent experiences the will to move. Is that will, actually? Isn't that something that makes us passive bystanders and observers of an experience, not the doers or enactors of an intention, which is, I think, more properly what we would call free will. Free will is something we do, right? It's not something we stand by and wait for it to arise. Something is wrong already about that scenario, I think. Um, There are actually earlier experiments by uh, Wilder Penfield in, in the 1930s Uh, who actually opened the skull and poked the brain so they did already do things like that and so and he could stimulate people that they would raise their arm. But the interesting thing about that is the, the person so stimulated said well you did that not I. So they were able to distinguish that. He could also poke the brain and certain memories would arise. But what he couldn't do is he couldn't poke the brain and make people believe something. His belief is something you have to do yourself. Right. Memories can arise spontaneously, you know, people can move your limbs in whatever other kind of way too, but believing is something you can only do yourself. That is much more, that's an act of freedom right there. And that is not something you can do by manipulating the brain. So what you get though, if you're looking for just this urge, is indeed involuntary, indeed involuntary kind of reflexes like sneezing. That's also an urge that sort of arises or vomiting, and it's hardly the paradigm for an act of free will Uh, Free will is also not necessarily something you experience at all. If I decide to do something, does that necessarily feel like something? I think it it can but uh, does not necessarily imply that. If I think 2 plus 2 is 4, does that feel like something? Not necessarily Um, And so likewise we make a decision and we do that, uh, but we do not necessarily feel an urge. Feelings are actually exactly what can get in the way of free will. Just think of temptations, right? So feelings can uh, assault you and they want to draw you into a certain direction and <clears throat> you actually have to use your free will against that. Right? And Thomas Aquinas thinks you can contradict with your free will all your feelings altogether. That means the feelings are over there, not here where the free will is. Mm. So free will doesn't feel like the the temptations feel like something. Um, And so if that is true, you know, you shouldn't expect that to be an experience or feeling like an urge that arises in you. It is rather the paradigm for an obstacle to free will, not the paradigm of free will. Um, Now then where should we look for free will? What Thomas Aquinas would say Where we deliberate. There is no free will without deliberation. There is no free will without your cognitive faculty, your your mind, your intellect. To illustrate that, um, let's assume I put two envelopes in front of you and I tell you one envelope is your death sentence and the other is a check for one million dollar. Now choose. So you choose one of the envelopes and lo and behold, it's your death sentence, right? What will you say? I didn't want that. Yes, you did. You choose it. Nobody forced you to choose that envelope. You know, but I didn't know what I was chosen. I don't own my choices. I don't think I'm free if I don't know what I'm doing. Knowledge is a necessary condition for an act of free will. And this knowledge um, then indeed is of that kind that it displays certain possibilities to me, a range of possibilities. And the very fact that I think about these possibilities, that I deliberate about them, is much more of evidence an evidence for free will than any feeling that you may have. It might not feel like anything, but you do deliberate your choices. And that uh, actually is the much more important evidence for free will. Whereas Benjamin Livert says, so this, the subjects and experiments, don't plan ahead. Yeah, Don't plan ahead what you're going to do. Just wait for this urge to arise. Well, he deliberately excludes an element that belongs by definition to free will, according to Thomas Aquinas. Why then would you expect you know, to find something uh, else than what he does? This is just simply not free will that he's looking at. Because free will does include deliberation. Now having said all of that there is actually place for what Benjamin Libet is looking at. So uh, and it has something to do with free will. For example how did you get out of bed this morning? Presumably you put up your alarm clock you know and then the alarm clock rings and then you have to make a choice you know you can just push the smooth button and says leave me alone i'm sleeping and you know and who cares what the world thinks, and so forth and so on but maybe you did it you know but that's the choice that's actually where you make a choice uh, so maybe you said okay i'm going to get up but maybe not immediately right Maybe it takes your blood circulation to come in the right place and so forth. But at a certain point, you find yourself outside of bed. You don't even quite know, perhaps, when and how it has happened because those things happen to be in the right place. This is a little bit like this experiment. So you make a choice, in this case, the choice to enter the experiment, but then allow, I mean, whenever you wiggle the finger, basically, you let that be determined by something else. But the whole thing is governed by the choice you made before. So your free choice is not just this one thing you do. The free choice governs a whole slew of things which is not necessarily always uh, conscious. Right? So um, I don't know how, how many free acts of will have you made today? What would you think? In this kind of explicit sense that you made a conscious choice, there might not have been that many uh, cases. Hmm. Thomas Aquinas would actually think that. However, that doesn't mean that your life is not governed by your free choices. You chose to get up out of bed and a lot of things follow from that. Or let's say you play tennis. Does any kind of strike or move that you make in tennis, is that a conscious choice? You would be a very bad tennis player, right? But you had to become a tennis player in the first place and that was a choice. And you chose to practice until these things became automatic so that you can let your readiness potentials take over in the moment. But the whole sequence of acts is still governed by the choice you make initially. And that was uh, a, con- a conscious choice, and it is a choice for which we are responsible too. You know, um, the older we get, the more choices we have made, the more we are responsible for the very habits that we have formed. We become more responsible for the very character that we have, you know, because depends on our previous choices. So that's an important thing. And if you And it may actually make you more predictable too. You can if she were still alive, you could predict that Mother Teresa is not going to kill you. It's quite predictable. Does that mean she doesn't have free will? No, the fact that she isn't going to kill you it depends on all the choices she has already made throughout her life to become a virtuous person who would never do such a thing. But that exactly makes her free. Because she is freer to participate in the very life of God, as I said initially. That is the true freedom. She wouldn't want anything else, and that is why you can predict that. But that's the fulfillment of freedom. Skipping a few things because I notice I'm running out of time. Uh, Just very briefly, um, Thomas Aquinas um, didn't know about those kind of things. He didn't have modern science. He didn't know about laws of nature that presumably can be deterministic and so forth. But he had something that was analogous to that, and that is some strange astrology. So there are the stars of heaven, and they influence what happens on the Earth. That is the old cosmology, and this was basically the best available science for, um, for Aquinas. And while that might sound strange, if you see the analogies with the modern picture, it's not so strange, really. So they they looked at the heavens and they saw the regular movements of the stars. They could be described by geometrical features and mathematical equations, indeed. It's exactly what we are looking for if we are looking for laws of physics, for example. And we also assume, we we just don't look for them in the stars, but on the subatomic level. And we also assume that this has an impact, including on neurophysiology. Our brain. And that may have something to do with our free will. But in, in the in Middle Ages, they also thought that the stars have an effect on neurophysiology, on the humours, on the soul. That's why you have temperaments, for example, the choleric temperament, the melancholic temperament, and you have still, you know, um, personality types and psychologies that work with that. And so these are typically not things we choose, but that influence us and our behavior and maybe our choices. So what Aquinas is looking at is not so far away then, if you if come to think of it. And what does Aquinas say? Do the stars determine us? That's sort of the analysis question to do the, do the laws of physics determine our free will. And he says, well, they incline us, but they don't necessitate what we are doing. Astra inclinant non necessitant. He doesn't invent that, that's an old saying, and he quotes it. So the stars incline us to do something, but they don't determine us. There's a predisposition that they produce, but um, they don't they're not deterministic. And he says only the wise will resist. It sounds a bit elitist, perhaps, you know. <laughs> but it's it's not really. So but what he's looking at is basically. The phenomenon of predictability in sociological terms, and we still have that. Amazon can predict you know your consumer choices in an eerie kind of way right mm-hmm. How would they know that? you know the algorithms know already what you want before you are conscious of it They're like the, the, the readiness potentials right so what do you do with that or um, you have um, criminal statistics so you know uh, a certain amount, a certain percentage of murders is going to occur in a certain city. You have criminal statistics, it's predictable. Now, um, these are um, crimes, right? So we hold people responsible for it. Otherwise there wouldn't be crimes. So how can they be responsible for it if you can predict it statistically? Now, this is a statistic paradigm and um, the The Jesuits in the 16th century have started to think about that, and they said, well, statistic paradigms is like you're rolling dice, right? If you're rolling dice, there's a certain kind of uh, probability for certain numbers and configurations to occur. You can predict that if you roll them often enough. Nevertheless, each roll of the dice is independent from the previous one. It's not that you roll the dice and that determines what the next is going to be. And Aquinas actually thinks uh, in similar ways. Aquinas thinks, um, you know what a venial sin is, right? So the, the mortal venial sins. And Aquinas thinks, even if you're in a state of grace, you cannot avoid every single venial sin. Um, we just don't have the capacity to pay so much attention to avoid that. Uh, we can, though, he said, avoid each single one. But not collectively. If you take the statistical distribution, at some point, probably something is going to go wrong. Uh, and that can be, he says, because of multitasking or because you're stressed out or distracted, you have too many things to do, and, um, and that's when your faults take over your life and so forth and so on. It's a very realistic kind of uh, commonsensical picture. But it gives you a, a sense of yes, there are statistical configurations, and whatever the causes are, we are inclined to do certain things, but we are not necessitated by it. We have each case, we are free, even if statistically, there's a certain predictability for things to go wrong. Um, And so in that sense, um, there is predictability. And it is predictability that has to do, for one, um, with the statistics. But it also has to do with the very rational choices that we make. Even the wise person is predictable. Everyone gets hungry and it's wise and rational to get some food, right? So you can predict even a wise person is going to eat. Does that mean the wise person is not free? No. Um, we all do that, but we can have reasons for not eating. For example, it's Lent or you're fasting or something like that. You know? So it's predictable that the basic inclinations that we have, including those that is rational to follow, will be followed, but there can be further reasons why we don't follow them. And maybe wise people have further reasons. They look at the broader scope of things. They look, perhaps, at participation in the greater goods of life, including in the very life of God. And so they may have more reasons to not act on things we typically act on, because they keep in mind that we all want to be happy and that we are all looking for God. So that's how I come back full circle. I'm out of time, but uh, we can clarify a number of these things perhaps in the Q&A. Thank you.
0: Hi, uh, I'm Joe. Um, so I'm in a religion class right now, so early to medieval. And we're talking about uh, St. Augustine. And he talk, talks about like predestination. Um, And I was just wondering, what is like the difference between determinism and predestination?
1: Very good, yeah. Uh, So that is uh, intentionally what I didn't talk about. (laughs) So (laughs) if you look at this, uh, I looked at the challenges that come sort of from the below perhaps, you know, the things that may determine us from below, brain physiology and things like that. But of course, there's also the question above, you know, does God determine our choices? But I want to uh, emphasize this is a very different question, and they're typically <laughs> conflated. <clears throat> so, I mean, those who know about compatibilism, incompatibilism, they always treat these two cases as if they were the same thing, <clears throat> but they aren't. <clears throat> because, because exactly of what I said in the beginning, our free will is, has as its goal to rest in God. Okay. That is what we want, that is the end for which we strive. We don't strive to, uh, you know, follow other kind of determinisms, right? What we do want in this case is that which fulfills our freedom. Now, if that which fulfills our freedom gives us the power to do what we really want, is that determinism or is that that which sets us free? grace and that's involved in predestination grace is given to us to set us free to do the one thing that we truly want namely to look for god so it sets us free from all the other determinisms that may keep us in bondage you know and addictions temptations whatever it is to follow the one ultimate desire of our heart and that is setting us free so that's the almost the opposite of that and I, I don't find that typically articulated in contemporary discourse.
0: Uh, hey there. So I guess, I, I suppose my main question, it, it kind of seems to me like you um, maybe avoided the shtick of determinism when it seems that my, any choice that I'm going to be made is going to involve um, distinct options to choose from, and so if I'm to be the ultimate arbiter of my decision. It seems like I'm going to need um, either at least full knowledge of my options or, um, you know, the the main, like, dialectic of determinism is I don't choose the options that then make it so I, you know, like my first choice, say, is determined. And so maybe I have free will um, if that were to be a truly free choice. But since I don't determine um, my parents and my heritage and where where I grow up, and et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't seem that I'm going to be free to make choices such as, hey, what if I um, wanted to be such and so engineer, but actually I was born on the moon, and so I can't even be any engineer, because there's no schools on the moon, um, something like that. I, I, I suppose I digress to
1: maybe a little No, 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 uh, so in fact, you uh, basically pointed out exactly the part I skipped in my talk, <laughs> which is Aquinas would not have an exaggerated notion. Of freedom to begin with. So, Sam Harris talks about that. Oh, if we have free choice, we have to be able to determine the Big Bang or something. We have to control all the antecedents of our action. Uh, Thomas Aquinas does not think that we have that power or that we need that power to have free choice. Sartre thinks that. You know, Sartre thinks we are responsible for everything, basically, for the very existence of the world, because we don't commit suicide, and that means we agree to be here, basically. uh, Aquinas wouldn't say such things. Um, here's a rather commonsensical understanding of the limitations of free will, beginning with I cannot decide to run as fast as a cheater. I mean, I just cannot, right? I don't have the power of bilocation. I cannot levitate at a will or something like that. You know? I cannot even will my feelings away, just like that. I can will not to act on them, but I cannot just simply will them away. I will have them. There are a lot of parts of my anthropology, so to speak, that are not in my control. I cannot. Control my heartbeat unless I'm really infarct or something. But the vegeta- vegetative part of our soul, Aquinas would say, is not, or to a very limited extent, under our control. Our digestion would be very nice if we, that we were under our control, right? So, um, so that it, it does not, we begin from somewhere. We are thrown, as Heidegger says, into this world, you know, and the, the factuality of our world, in the facticity. Uh, but then we still have choices about that with what we have been given. It doesn't mean that we are simply determined by that. It just means we don't have an unlimited choice. We are not God. You know, but we still have choices to make, and that presupposes, as you, uh, I think rightly said, the, um, our intellect, we have to know, right? So knowledge is presupposed. That's what I meant with the two envelopes, too. You know? So we have to know, and our freedom, Aquinas would say, does not extend further than our knowledge. Not all that we know is under our control, but only what we know is under our control. Because free will presupposes knowledge. And that can indeed be rather limited. But then again, keep in mind what I've also said: not everything needs to be conscious. I don't have to be conscious of every letter that I'm pronouncing, or if I'm playing the piano, I don't have to be conscious of where I put my finger at each moment. That pre- already depends on the habits that I form voluntarily earlier. So it's governed still by my free
0: um, follow, it seems to me though that, so like even if I'm not the ultimate cause of my decisions, it seems that I'm not even going to be the cause of my decisions um, when the, the full
1: force of, let's say, like determinism is factored. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that. I mean, so um, you say I'm not the full cause of my decisions. Uh, I am, it right, so far, that's my decision. So uh, there are preconditions that limit the range of things I can choose from. But what I choose is fully unlike, I'm sure, leaving aside perhaps God you know, in some way. But uh, any kind of finite good, the would say, uh, <laughs> that's a real choice. We do have choice, and it doesn't depend on what went on before that way. And so then, it seems. It's, maybe it's just one formulation. Like, all these things, all these antecedents, from the Big Bang on, they enter my choice, not as a. Cause of my choice, but as an object of my choice. Does that make sense, that distinction? because so, uh, they, 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 so they're not a, they're not causing my choice, but insofar as I'm aware of it, they become my cognitive object about which I have then a choice. So they enter by way of my mind into the choice, but that means exactly as something that I have options about. You said that was the preconditions that are. Yes.
0: Okay, Um, the last thing I suppose um, is then it seems that responsibility is going to be an extremely limited notion and also uh, possibly like, uh, if we're, it uh, it seems like then we can excuse things like murder still. Um, If the murderer is not,
1: uh, maybe, maybe often so the limitation is there, Aquinas would totally agree with that, and that's common sense to uh, again how <laughs> how limited that is well, you can make some arguments about it. if I, as I said, you know I mean much of our life, especially if we grow older, yeah. is already governed by previous choices. I would include that in that, and maybe then it's not quite so limited However, I mean there are limitations, and so. Any in court, if you have a you know, brain defect that makes you act erratically, would not hold you accountable. They might still treat you for it, you know, but you wouldn't be punished like a criminal. And I find something would agree with that. And if, you, if you're under drugs, you know, I mean, that can be your fault too, you know, but I mean, it might mess you with your brain and with certain preconditions for all cognition. And if that cognition isn't there, then um, you can also not make reasonable choices if you're confused, for example can then maybe still make the choice to refrain from a choice, which is often the wise thing to do. If you're confused and disturbed, you know, that's probably not the best moment to make a life choice. You know? So it might be the good thing just to say, I'm going to wait, and that's still a choice you can make. All right, so going back to kind of idea of
0: freedom and the good, is it possible to choose evil as an end? <laughs> so you use the bank robber as an example, and he's doing evil, or to family, for example. So you're doing it in the pursuit of good. Can you choose evil as an end, and not as a means to the good?
1: No, I mean, so that's, Aquinas would say no, and you know, most of the, well, the philosophers would agree with that. Um, uh, this is just by definition what it means to choose something. We choose something for a purpose, and purpose just means what we consider the good. We can be confused about what the real good is, but we always choose something as at least an apparent good, Aquinas would say, because evil is something that is it's self-contradictory to choose that, because you're trying to harm the very good that you think even your very choice is. You want—how um, to put your finger on that? But have to talk what evil actually is. You know? Evil is actually the lack of something. It's not a thing, really. You know? It's the absence of something, and. Uh, that to pursue that as something in itself um wouldn't make sense. Yeah. There may be a better way of putting that, but that's as good as I can do this right now.
0: Okay. So first I have a clarifying mm-hmm. question. So are you arguing and by extension Aquinas, arguing for like some libertarian free will or some form of compatibilism?
1: Just <laughs> Yeah, these are always the the code terms. Uh, I avoid those because I think they're just misleading. As I said earlier, I mean that people just lump things together with determinism when they talk about God or physical determinism. This is just not the same thing. That's why I don't find these terms helpful at all. You know, and so compatibilism—Aquinas is a compatibilist with regard to God's grace, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that he's a compatibilist with regard to physics. It's precisely because God. Can by, our, by his grace set us free, that are not determined by physics. And that's something I, I, I just doesn't seem to compute with contemporary uh, schemata of analytical philosophers. That's doesn't fit that, you know. And uh, but I think if you don't see that, you don't understand what free will is. Uh, it's a libertarian, um, you know. If you mean that as you know a choice between options that's not determined, yeah. I mean Aquinas would think that's true if you. Um, exercise what he calls the liberum arbitrium, that is you choose among the means for the end, but it's the ultimate end, which is God because God is the ultimate end and there are different means that can lead us to that end, we have a choice we have an infinite good and a finite means to that end, and among those we do have libertarian choices
0: Uh, so so I feel like compatibilism and libertarianism are like uh, you have to you definitely have to choose one or the other because because <laughs> either yeah either in any circumstance you could choose either one or the other or as a compatibilist says in any circumstance you are going to choose what you are going to choose and that is determined in that sense but you still have the will to act on it so therefore as long as it I, I
1: would think it depends on what you are looking at. so you have not libertarian free will with regard to God. And that's not a problem, and that does not contradict freedom if you understand it properly. But you do have libertarian free will with regard to the means. And I don't think that's a contradiction if you say this is with regard to the means and to the ends. and There's a difference between the two.